Welcome to the Knowledge Entrepreneurs Show, where we celebrate the innovators driving change in the education industry. At Edison OS, we've worked with over 500 knowledge entrepreneurs to turn their edtech ideas into profitable businesses. In today's episode of the Knowledge Entrepreneur Show, we have Paul Solka. Paul is a dedicated educator who firmly believes that many students have untapped potential. He's committed to providing the skills and guidance required for students to excel in one of the most challenging standardized tests in the country, the SAT. The focus on critical reading, maths, and writing, Paul works closely with students to enhance their mastery of vocabulary, strategic thinking, and subject content. His ultimate goal is to set each student on a path to success in their chosen university and future endeavors. Hi, Paul. Good evening. Welcome to the Knowledge Entrepreneur Show. Thank you so much for taking your time out for this. Thank you so much for having me, Jag. It's a pleasure My to be pleasure. here. Likewise, Paul. Thank you so much. Paul, uh, I was just going through your LinkedIn profile and a little bit of your website uh, just to, you know, get some information about you. And um, my experience most of the times is that, you know, I've spoken to a lot of SAT test prep people and, you know, there's a little bit of a transition. They work for big companies first and stuff like that. At least that's what's on LinkedIn. I saw yours, you know, you've done your uh, education and then directly seem to have started off in 2002, July, Ivy Masters. So did you always know that this is what you wanted to do? Absolutely not. So there's kind of a a, uh, a okay. joke in the test prep industry. It's not like you, like no one grows up being like, I want to be an SAT tutor or I want to, you know, you know, kids will say, you know, I want to be an astronaut or something like that. So that was definitely not my story. Um, I actually, so first off, I went to University of Pennsylvania and I was undergrad. I was like, hey, what? I have to declare a major. And because I had to, um, you know, declare a major, it was just time. Um, and I wrestled in college I'd, for eligibility for wrestling and all. And um, anyway, so I wound up being a sociology major undergrad. And then um, and uh, then I wound up going to uh, grad school for education, because what do you do with a sociology major? I don't know. <laughs> One of my friends had been through the grad ed program, and he seemed to in enjoy it shout out zach hunter um i don't know if he remembers talking to me but uh, i am still in touch actually over linkedin a little bit with zach hunter um anyway um so and and i started tutoring sat at least in some capacity when i graduated college and this is back in 1998 and for a little while i worked for um sylvan learning center and i had i think they were paying me 12 bucks an hour and i had uh, three students at my table at once, and um, they were paying, I think, $45 each. It might have been $35 each, but anyway, wow. it was somewhere between like $105 and um, yeah, $135 an hour sitting at my table, and I was getting $12, and I was like, hey, what's up with this? So that kind of planted the seed in my head, and then after that, I wound up, you know, I, I actually... So I've been tutoring SAT for the past 25 years, at least in some capacity. I started Ivy Masters 21 years ago, and I've been doing it full-time for 20 years. So I still teach. It's a lot more uh, management now because I've got 
um, so many contractors working for me, but yeah. Right. So, uh, that instance, you know, where you taught SAT for students at $12 per hour, and then you found out, you know, what's the difference in what they're getting paid and what they paid you. Um, was that kind of, you know, did you, were you like pleasantly surprised? Wow. Teaching SAT can, you know, it's a pretty lucrative thing. Uh, yes. So, and when I was, let me clarify, when I was, uh, teaching for Sylvan Learning Center, I was not teaching any SAT. I had like, I was maybe teaching a little SAT on my own at that point. And that might've been like a little bit before, a little bit after I was working for Sylvan Learning Center. Um, and so, yeah, it was 12 bucks an hour. When I first, I remember first, um, teaching SAT, I taught, uh, it was like twenty dollars an hour was my first gig, right? And and then um, I can remember just increasing my rates, and I, I can remember being at like forty dollars an hour and being like, "Who's gonna pay me forty dollars for an hour of work?" Like it seemed like it was so much. And now, um, you know, I'm charging eleven times more than what I charged when I first started tutoring SAT. So now I, I don't really think about it anymore. Um, I was, yeah, I really, I'm not, I'm really not thinking about it anymore. Um, it's just, if my schedule, it's a simple formula. If my schedule is full, then I'll raise my rates and my schedule keeps filling. <sighs> Great. Got it. Got it, Paul. Paul, uh, were you, did you have any alternative career paths back in the day when you were doing SAT? Because if you had to teach SAT, you must have taken SAT yourself and maybe you had some plans. Uh, so, and I also saw that, were you an aspiring athlete at the time? Oh yeah, so I, I wrestled in college, but really, um, if if someone does wrestle in college, usually that's where it ends. There's very few cases right. of students who continue to wrestle after college. And actually I was, um, I was fortunate enough to wrestle with a guy named Brandon Slay, who he won the Olympics in 2000. Um, so, wow. you know, how much better than that do you get? Um, so we do have like a, a story. We were fraternity brothers, same recruit class. Um, I, I actually remember seeing him on my uh, recruit trip and I was like, wow, this guy's neck is thicker than it's, than his head. And, uh, and um, yeah, so I was really fortunate to wrestle with some like amazing, we actually won uh Eastern championship by the highest point total and the highest point margin in the history of the tournament um, class of 1997 and uh, my my old coach Roger Reyna, who had left UPenn, is now back there, and it's just so good to see him back because, um, you know, university wrestling and was demanding, and so was school, and I had a job, and it was just it was probably the most demanding, difficult type of time of my life, and um, you know, but when I when I think back at like some of the like the road trips and like eating meals together and um you know you really form a bond and it's it's kind of like your your brothers um from all that traveling together and coach Reina was amazing mentor like even today um he's just an amazing influence on like 
so many people who he, who he uh, sees. Yeah. Great. Paul, uh, do you recollect your first student on your own? Do I remember my, like the first, the first student I tutored? Yeah. On your own, so like not I've... working for another tutoring company or something. Right. Right. So I do, I don't, I don't know if I remember her name though, but I remember where she lived and, um, yeah, I, I think uh, her sister's name was princess and I forget what her name was, but, um, I do remember exactly where they lived. Um, yeah. And I remember, uh, yeah. First starting to take tutors, uh, students on my own. And you, you asked, you said that you asked me a question before about, um, you know, were you surprised by how lucrative it was, right. how it turned out to be? And were you always tutoring SAT? When I first started tutoring, I was tutoring absolutely everything. Did I tutor SAT? Yes, I did. But I also tutored classroom instruction. Um, and I was working with all levels of students, right. um, elementary right through high school. And my, I could remember, like, not only SAT being more lucrative, but it was also, I didn't have to, um, I had Billy who was in third grade and I wanted to staple him to his seat because he wouldn't sit still. And you don't really have to deal with that on the high school level. And it's, you know, it's more academically challenging, uh, SAT is. And, you know, it's really, I, I like it because it's the single most important test that a student will get for you take for university admissions that or the ACT or both. And, um, I really love, uh, being a part of a student's journey. There, there are students who sometimes they come back to me and they say, Hey, we would never have gotten in. We would never be where we are now, uh, had, you know, you not helped us out. And that is so rewarding that that's what makes it worth it. Right. And, um, you know, you formally started Ivy Masters in 2002. And uh, even before that, you know, when you say you started teaching since 25 years, some capacity. So I believe until 2002, July, it was just part time. You were, you know, juggling a lot of other things. And 2002, you decided to like go full time. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, 2002. Um, so... I dropped a hundred bucks in a bank account and I made sure that the, my business name was not already taken. I went to the County clerk's office and that's really what you have to do to open a business. And so I was officially in business. And I think that at that point I might have had like 16 students. I don't, I remember that number standing out in my mind and maybe it was just, Maybe it was I didn't have that many students immediately. Maybe I had that student that many students like after a time. But I remember being like, wow, I have 16 students. And then um, and then a year after that, I had started doing it full time. And when I was doing it full time, I was um, and this is one of the things that you're saying before as well is I, I started so inexpensively that a number of things happened. Number one, my schedule was just always full and I would just raise my rates. Like I, when I first started, I was raising my rates like $5 every six months when my schedule would full fill. Um, 
And I was working. There was a time that I was working every day, Monday through Friday until 10, sometime between 10 and midnight at night. And I was working full days, Saturday and Sunday. And when I say full days, it was like, you know, 15 at, at its height, maybe 15 hours a day for Saturday and or Sunday. So I, I, when I was like just crazy, crazy busy, and I literally had like no life. It was just teach, 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 teach. Um, but then um, I wound up getting girlfriends who demanded some time from me. So um, I wound up teaching a little less and um, spending, having some sort of a, a, a social life, at least with them. Yeah. Right. Right. Great. It's been, uh, so when you, right now, you know, you've got a lot of contractors that you employ or, you know, you work with uh, to meet the demands. But uh, what was your first hire like, or, you know, the first person from outside to join you at Ivy Masters Learning Center? So I can, I can remember um, when I first, I, I can remember first trying to get someone to work for me. And he was, one of my like favorite students, um, we actually did an advertisement with him, and he he didn't he didn't really want to do it. His name was was uh, Zach. He didn't really want to do it, and I actually wound up tutoring his sister and his two younger brothers. They're a wonderful family. Um, but then after, I think the the first person I hired tutor for me, um, his name's Joe, and um, he was just a total package. This is when the, so I spent a lot of years being a solopreneur. It was just me. Um, but then at some point I was like, Hey, I've got all these brilliant former students. Why don't I, and my schedule is always full. Why don't I hire some of them to tutor for me? And so I think the first one who really wound up working out was Joe and Joe was, he scored like, 2330 or 2350 out of 2400 when it was a 2400 point SAT between March of 2005 and January 2016. So he was really bright. But not only that, and this is kind of, I've got a lot of students who are really high performers. So it wasn't just that, but it was, he's just, he's got a great personality. And he really relates to people really well. And then at that point, it's just a matter of, hey, could he convey the information well? Could he teach well? He's got the personality and he's really bright. And that's pretty much the formula that I've used. Uh, every year, I'm, I wind up taking on at least a former student to teach for me. And is, those are the three things. Do they convey the information well? Um, do they have the right personality for it? And do they know the material well enough? And I'm so busy usually teaching myself and just managing the business that I do wind up hiring former students who have really done really well on the test. So um, they've, not in every single case, but most of them I actually tutored myself. Uh, so they know the the system and the process right so at some point you must have uh, you know decided that okay i'm only going to do sat and act uh you know there was a time you're doing 
all the things and uh, when was that and when you did that what was the typical duration for which the students spent you know did it take 20 hours or 40 hours um to kind of you know run through an entire sat training with one student so um first off my no longer teaching classroom subjects is really there was no point that i said i'm not going to teach classroom subjects anymore right. um what i my my price just increased and if someone wanted me wanted me to teach them pre-calculus i would do it but there was a point where you could get someone for half the price that you're paying me right to get them to tutor pre-calculus so it just didn't really make sense and sometimes i'd get a call and i'd be like well yeah i could do it but i don't have a separate price for classroom tutoring so as a result like now and it's it's been years that i haven't had anything for classroom tutoring my tutors do have two separate prices one for academic tutoring classroom subjects and the other for SAT or ACT or AP or college level. Um, and then and as far as how many hours I'll work with a student for SAT or ACT, um, I've always been flexible, um, at least whenever I could. So right now we have 12-hour packages for private tutoring. We also have 18-hour packages for private tutoring. Usually... 12 hours is good for us to get the job done and do it well. Sometimes parents uh, like more time. Um, so 18 hours, um, sometimes parents like would prefer that as well. The classroom instruction, that varies. It could be, I've run like small classes, just um, like four two-hour lessons. And then I've also run classes 32 hour classes as well. Those have been my biggest classes. Um, and in as far as results, hey, I've had, I can remember having a student um, who I worked with him for one hour lessons and he went from a 1250 to a 1500. Fantastic. Wow. You know, his, he was thrilled. His family was thrilled. So stuff like that happens. It's super rare. But in that case, it was we were I knew we knew we were gonna have four lessons before the test, but we were gonna continue to the, the test after that. But when he did so well just in those four lessons, you know, you, you then they were like, hey, thanks. We're gonna cancel all the rest of our lessons. Which, you know, hey, that's you know, it's a great a great story i don't i don't mind uh mind that um but yeah anyway um so it does vary how much time i work with a student right. but it's always i'm going to structure my lessons if i'm working with students privately then i'm going to structure my lessons accordingly and the same thing for classes whether it's a a short or a long class um we want to hit the uh um the big ROI, like the big return on investment questions um, early on. And, uh, you know, we're not worried as much about the, the details right. if there's not as many hours. Right, Paul. 
And uh, before you take up a student, uh, do you have a diagnostic test, you know, where you can assess where they are at? And then you prescribe maybe this is the number of hours that I'll need with the student. We have, we have mock tests every single Saturday. So right. my recommendation is always for a student to take a mock SAT and take a mock ACT. Universities don't care. They'll look at whatever test is comparably higher. So I'll give you an example. 20 is the national average for ACT. In SAT, if we were to translate that to an SAT score, it would be a 1040. So if a student takes both tests, if they score 21 on ACT but 1,000 on SAT, then their ACT is comparably better. They should prepare for and move forward with that test. But if, on the other hand, they score 20 on ACT and 1,100 on SAT, then they should prepare for and move forward with the SAT. So that's one reason we do baseline tests. Um, and typically what we'll use as what I recommend parents um, use as their baseline mock test, and it could also serve as a diagnostic, is the most recent test that we have a full scale for. So, um, for example, the College Board, they, they release their tests three times a year, March, May, and October. And so we have the May, which is the most recent SAT that's been released by the College Board, but the scale is not complete. They never released the full scale. So at this point, we're using March as a diagnostic. And um, what I do is everyone receives a score report. So shout out to uh, Pranoy for letting me use Raven, who is his admin. Um, and she's made this great system of score reporting for us. Um, and it helps to, it populates, um, Google sheets. Um, and I could see if I'm sitting in from a classroom, I could see, uh, what percent of students got, which question correct. So I know the trouble spots with the class and we could address those during the class. Um, but for like diagnostic, what I do is. Anytime I have a student, the process is the student would pay for the mock test and then um, they would get a credit towards services for the same amount as the mock test. So mock tests are $45 each. Student takes two mock tests, a mock SAT and a mock ACT. Then they'll get a coupon code for $90 towards services with us. Um, yeah. And that works well because I could just look at uh, who's paid for the tests, and I make sure that they get detailed score reports. And from that, for that, I use uh, one of my other colleagues. His name is Vinny Madera. He's got a he's a statistics professor. He's um, he also has a tutoring business, uh, Test Prep Wizards, and he does the detailed score reports for us. So you'll be able to see not only um, the two digit reading versus writing language score to see which is better within the verbal section and your two-digit math score. But you could look at it and, and see, oh, um, this student missed this many questions for subject-verb agreement. This student missed like this many questions or this percent of questions for, um, I don't know, in math, like systems of linear equations or something like that. Right. And uh, Paul, is there a score that, you know, makes you say, oh, no, you know what, uh, I won't be able to take up a student? Um, 
Yeah, so I had uh, it. That that's tough. That's a tough question. So there's two things. Um, number one. So if a student's in the seven hundreds, then they've got to make such an immense improvement on their score that there are test optional um, universities. And if a student's uh, grades in their in school are decent, then it makes sense for them to apply uh, test optional to university. And often, like probably in most cases, when a student's in the 800s as well, um, for the same reason. Now, there are some of some of my tutors work pretty well with students who are low scorers. And have I had students who are low scorers make some like, like great improvements, an improvement that's submittable? Yes, I have. But that's not really my, to be honest with you, that's not my sweet spot. There's some of my tutors work better with that type of a student. So, um, and then also depending on where, where the student is, in a lot of cases, it makes sense for them to do something else. I think that, um, and maybe it's the same um, there, but here in U.S., particularly New Jersey, it's kind of like, hey, you finish high school, everyone goes to college. But there's a lot of times it's it's kind of like for a student who's scoring super low, it's kind of like you're trying to teach like a duck to fly. Um, and student might, may not even enjoy school and might have some other natural talent. Sometimes it's pressure from the parents and, um, it may be any number of things, but a lot of cases students better off doing something else. Um, you know, my, my brother's my brother, I have a brother who has a heating and air conditioning company. He's quite successful. Um, and so that that's, that's his path and he's great at it. And that's what he should be doing. Like he's not going to do something academic, but don't tell me to fix anyone's air conditioning because that won't go very well at all. Um, so my brothers are really handy. And I'm just not. And it's kind of funny dynamic when my wife asked me to like put something together or fix something. It's not really my cup of tea, but you know, I, I guess I get by with what I need to get by with. <laughs> right. And uh, has there been a situation where the opposite has occurred, you know, where somebody is so good that you're like, oh, you know what? This student doesn't need any tutoring. Yes. Um, I actually have a perfect example of that. Um, I had tutored a a student um a student's sister the parents called me and the student was already already her scores were like they're they're basically ivy league scores and i told them yeah you could you could just uh she could just like do a little study on her own she's gonna be fine and they still booked me um and um, she still, she wound up doing awesome. And, um, and she is one of those students who is just, um, she, her scores were there. Her personality was there. 
She conveys the information really well. Um, and actually, so I wound up hiring her as a tutor. Her name's Sahani. And she's like, she's, she's awesome. She's really um, great. So I actually wound up tutoring her, even though I told her parents, like, no, I don't need, um, she, she'll be fine on her own. And I literally just um, had a report back from a parent, from a parent. So this is a, a woman who I know from the gym, probably like 10 years ago. I met her at the gym. She knew that I, what I did. Um, I tutored her older sister, uh, or I'm sorry, her, her oldest daughter. And she has twins who were in my class and now they're taking the test again and they're looking for private tutoring. And so, um, she was really wary about hiring Sahani because Sahani is just a rising senior. She's actually the same age as some of the, she's the same age as her twins. She's the same age as these students she was going to be tutoring. And so the mom was like, yeah, you know, that that's, that's not going to, you know, they can't have someone that's their same age. Well, anyway, they, they booked an appointment with Sahani and they loved her. They, she literally wrote an email. I'll read it to you. She wrote, they loved her. They said she explained everything so well and they got so much from their session. We will be booking her from this point on. Thanks for everything. So that that's like music to my ears. That's what I love to hear. And, um, and some of my colleagues actually say, oh yeah, I tried hiring former students who were young, like high school or early on in college. And they they're just like terrible. And I can't, I feel like I can't relate to it. Um, because I feel like I, I don't know, maybe I just get, got lucky and maybe it's New Jersey. New Jersey is very, um, very, a lot of high achieving students in New Jersey. For example, the full title of the PSAT is PSAT slash NMSQT and the NMSQT part stands for national merit scholarship qualifying test. And, um, so the qualifying score is by state and the highest qualifying score in the country. Um, top three is typically Massachusetts, New Jersey, and Washington, DC. So New Jersey is always among the top. And even where I live in New Jersey, there's these specialized high schools. There's a freehold regional school district. Each of those five schools have a like magnet program that students have to test into. And not only that, but the vocational system in Monmouth County, and actually Old Bridge, where my office is, it's in Middlesex County, but it's right on the border of Monmouth County. And we get a ton of students from Monmouth County. Um, these specialized high schools, some of the high schools, like the average SAT score is just about an Ivy League score. So um, we've got lots of highly motivated uh, students here. Interesting. So when you have such high performing students, you know, around the place that you live, uh, Paul, um, I mean, is it mostly, you know, your help goes into what, like helping them maybe, you know, uh, up their game by very tiny margins, right? Uh, it won't be too much moving of the needle or is it? Yeah, so it depends. Depends on where they started and where they're going. And uh, I'm realizing that I didn't answer one of your questions. But um, so sometimes I, 
I might get a student. I'll give you an example. I worked with a student and um, he scored 1500. And I said, hey, that's fantastic. So pre-COVID, the average for like the best uh, universities, some of the best universities in the country, like a Harvard or Princeton was like 1510, something like that. And so I expressed this to the mom. I was like, hey, you know, great job. You know, his scores are where they need to be. And she said something that, you know, I should just know I've been doing this for so long. She was like, yeah, but not for an Asian. She's right. Like, um, there's so many um, Asian students who are so high achieving that um, when it comes down to it, every university has a uh, regular during regular decision. There's this process called rounding the class. And this happens with majors. They might say, oh, we have too many engineers. We we're going to accept the student. Now we have to reject them. Uh, we don't have enough sociology majors. We we're going to reject the student. Now we're going to accept them. But it also has, happens with race. They, you know, universities could be like, hey, we've got so many Asians. Like this student would get in here. But now we've, we, you know, we have too many Asians. So right. we're, we're going to wind up, you know, that's honestly, that's the reality of it. It happens with gender as well. Uh, boys go to trade school. They might become a carpenter, an electrician, or HVAC guy. Uh, girls go to university with higher percentages. So um, university campuses might wind, hang out around 51% female, 49% male. But um, you know, usually the college admissions process is a little more challenging for girls. They're at a little bit of a disadvantage, early decision or early action, but more of a disadvantage, regular decision, regular action, which is why applying early is usually an advantage for students. Got it, Paul. Paul, uh, you obviously started off uh, in-person teaching, right? Like face-to-face teaching. But um, a lot of people moved to online teaching after 2020. Um, did you have to, you know, did you move online only after 2020 or, you know, was it way earlier than that for you? Um, it was, so had I had students, uh, before 2020 that who I worked with virtually, I did. So it was an option, but the classes I ran were, I think that they were all a hundred percent in person. Before COVID hit, right. um, I'm not I'm not positive about that. I don't quite remember. But after COVID hit, um, then obviously everything went virtual. So and all all the national test dates wound up being canceled. So March Monroe High School, that's a only local high school that offered the March of 2020. SAT. All of the other SATs were canceled. All the other high schools canceled their SATs. But then May was canceled nationally. And then the uh, April ACT was canceled nationally. I don't know if the June one was or not, but students would like keep signing up for tests and they keep being canceled. But anyway, um, so once COVID hit, everything was virtual. And 
the, even though the tests were canceled, I had some students who hung on to the test. And I remember, I think I had 23 private hours. I was tutoring students at that point and it went down to six and I was like, Oh no. Um, am I going to be able to afford my mortgage? Am I going to be able to, you know, what's going to happen now? So it was kind of a scary time, but what I wound up doing is, uh, I taught, I taught, um, everything virtual, obviously. And then at one point I said, okay, uh, things are opening up now. I know we have to social distance, but now I'm going to make my classes in person. And then I can remember it was like, literally it was like maybe an hour before this in-person class. Um, one of my, uh, one of my students, the moms had just realized it's in person. And she was like, she can't come in person. And it was probably a case where she was immunocompromised or something like that. So she said, we got to, um, run it. We, we have to attend virtually. And I was like, ah, no, I kind of played it off. I was like, ah, no problem. You know, I'm going to have students in person, but you could just join virtually. I'll run it hybrid. And I remember calling one of my colleagues. Um, he's out in Texas. I'm part of this organization called the National Test Prep Association. And uh, one of my colleagues named Shane Bybee, he has a, a company in, in Texas, uh, because I knew that he had run things. I think he run things virtually in person and maybe hybrid as well. And I called him to ask for advice. And he was just like, get ready to issue a refund. And I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> and so... I wound up, but I wound up teaching that class hybrid and it went fine. And I've been teaching all my classes hybrid ever since. And it's wow. really a good option. For example, yesterday I had a student who was away on vacation, but he joined SAT class virtually. Usually he's in person. Um, if a kid's sick, but not so sick that they can't join, then they could join virtually instead of in person. Um, it's just another option. And then I have some kids. I've had a kid from Switzerland take my class. Um, and from Hawaii, I've worked with students from Hawaii before, um, California. So in lots of different places around the country, and like at least in that one case around the world, um, take like classes or work with students virtually. And I, I treat them exactly the same as I treat students in person. I'll call on call on all my students in person also call on all my just like a call on my students virtually and they have hard copies of materials if they're close enough they'll pick them up and if they're too far away then we'll mail them out right but uh right now you're back to in-person classes the majority of your students are in person and only a few of them join you virtually that that's right right yes and uh, Paul, uh, before I, you know, move on to uh, SAT going digital and all that, I want to ask you another question. You know, you started, it's been like 21 years. And uh, for example, you know, you were talking about a point where uh, there are some locations where the average score itself is so high. And then, you know, there is a competition between groups. Say, for example, Asians have to kind of, you know, compete against themselves and not compare other scores and stuff like that. So how has the change been since, you know, 2002 to now in, you know, considering all these little factors, um, a general increase in the people that take SAT or ACT, and then, you know, uh, the 
increase in other races and stuff like that. So what are the changes like that that you've seen? And what are the ways that you've had to adapt to all these? Well, I think that the demographic of student that um, I work with has definitely changed. So I could, and and there's a couple of different factors that have played in here. So um, early on, so I'll say this, like it, it seems like there are some countries like in Africa that really like are more invested in um, education. So uh, a lot of the African families I work with are either um, Nigerian or they're from Ghana. And um, so, I mean, I had some, some families from uh, Ghana in particular early on. Um, and, but I, I really, the majority of my students I had at that point, I think were like white, white. And I remember people telling, uh, asking me, Hey, you must have lots of Asian students. And I remember being like, no, I, I really don't. And I don't know is because um, just the area I lived or what. And I still do. I live in the same general area. I live about 25 minutes away from where I lived before. But um, a couple of factors came in to play. One thing is I had a, a guy, his name is Victor Jiang, um, contact me and say, hey, I and he said, hey, I teach SAT math. And this is a long time ago. This isn't, maybe it's not 20 years ago, but it's close to 20 years ago. He's like, hey, I teach SAT math. Um, like, do you want to pick up all the verbal stuff? And, you know, maybe it was be just because his students needed help. And he didn't like ask me for any money for giving him, for him giving me students or anything like that. He was, he was awesome. Um, and so then I wound up tutoring like, at one point more SAT verbal than anything. And, um, and then I don't know exactly how it happened. I think it might've been through him. I wound up tutoring this, uh, this family, they owned a computer company and then they wound up, um, and they were involved in real estate and they had some investors and stuff like that. They wound up buying the AT&T building in Somerset, New Jersey, I think it was. And they opened the New Jersey Chinese Community Center. And I wound up teaching classes there. And so there was a time where I had like, the Asian students that I had were, like there were a lot of Chinese Asian students that I had. So I taught class there. I wound up working with students privately there as well. Um, and then... Like now I'm in a situation where there's there's actually a big Indian population in the town. So I'm in my office is in Old Bridge, but it's kind of perfectly located because I get a lot of business in Manalpin. It's right by the border of Manalpin. Um and I get a lot of business from Monroe. It's right by the border of Monroe. Um I have a lot of Indian students from Monroe. Um and it, it's kind of it's kind of funny because one of my good friends, his name is uh, Sadipta. He is, uh, I remember him and his then wife making me an honorary brown person 
because like it would be like he'd have all his friends and over for a party and stuff like that and it would be me i'd be the white guy um and so anyway um i right now i wind up i work with a lot of uh i have a lot of indian students actually um yeah great great um, and, you know, even uh, from a perspective of teaching, Paul, so let's say, I don't know, I'm making a couple of assumptions here in 2002, let's say you focused more on the concepts in the subject. Um, and, you know, the competition may not have been much between the students themselves. But today, is it, you know, much beyond the subjects itself that you focus on, you know, other strategies that surround the test? Like, say, for example, even if two students know exactly the same concepts, and the subject matter, um, do they, you know, be better at time management or, you know, the way they kind of consume the question and understand and break it down, stuff like that? Do you also focus, do you also spend time to help them out in these other areas apart from the knowledge itself, the subject? Oh, yeah, yeah. So it's not just, um, so it's like strategy or quote unquote tips and tricks. Um Tonight, in the class that I taught, I just taught the class between six and eight. Um, and in my class, I always put a problem on the board to explain a concept, to explain the importance of a, an approach. I put a problem on the board, and every single time, every single student gets it wrong. And it's basically, I'll do like a quick like graph of it. So one, two, three, four, five, two, four, six, eight. And then you make a line, something like that. So this is, and then I'll put four different equations on the board and be like, hey, which equation matches this graph? And everyone gets it wrong because number one, the y-intercept is not what it appears to be. There's a one there. The y-intercept by definition is where x is zero. So the y-intercept is actually down here. Right. Um, and then the slope. Here it goes by one. Here it goes by two. So even if I so most students I would have boxes here. And if this is the line, most students would say, Oh, the slope, you rise two and you run one. No, but you rise four because this is by twos and you run one. So here's a really good example. Of the equation of this line is actually y equals 4x minus 2. So some most students will pick y equals 2x, 2x plus 2, because it looks like you got a slope of 2, rise 2, boxes, run, run. Um, and then it also looks like your y-intercept is 2, but it's not because that's not where x is 0. So it's actually, the equation of this line is actually y equals 4x minus 2. So the strategy here is that, like, I... Tonight, I had students say, I would never catch that. And I said, that's why you have to take this approach. That's a coordinate, 1, 2. Plug it into each equation. You will get it right. And you don't have to worry about the scales being different. You don't have to worry about the y-intercept not being what it appears to be. Um, so uh, anyway, that's, that's just one um, example of approach. It, and it's not just content. It is approach for the toughest questions. And it might be tough because the scale is off and the y-intercept's not what it appears to be. But it also might be a question that very few students get correct. 
because it's a parabola with a twist or something like that. Or so anyway, that's an example. If you have a coordinate and an equation, or if you have a graph and the answer choices are equations and just plug a coordinate in. Um, but then it's also, I could rattle off to you how students are typically taught in school and what you'll find on SAT and how that could literally screw them up, what they were taught in school. So I get this all the time. Hey, class, how do you use a colon? And students will be like, use a, use a colon before a list. Well, there's, there's literally four different question types that they're going to get wrong if they, they simply think that you use a colon before a list. Number one, you need an independent clause before the colon. What comes before the colon has to be something that could stand alone as its own sentence. So what they'll do is they'll make the colon an option. They'll have a list after it, but there won't be an independent clause before. Students should not pick the colon there. Right. Or they might have an independent clause before and just one thing you would expect after. Then you do use the colon because it doesn't have to be a list. It could just be one thing. Um, also, a colon could be used to separate two independent clauses, much like the semicolon is used or a period. Um, and then lastly, if you, you might have a list in the middle of a sentence if that could be taken out and the beginning and end of the sentence could combine to make a complete sentence, then even if you have an independent clause before and the list after, you don't use the colon. You need matching punctuation. You need a comma before and after, a dash before and after, or parentheses before and after. So anyway, I said all that really quickly. Um, I have I have this all written down, and I have my students like, you know, highlight it, give them examples, give them an exercise, a drill on it, blah, 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 blah. So um, the grammar example is more content, but also for math, it, it's like picking numbers. It's using answer choices. For the reading, it's a lot of times it's um, having students revisit and reinforce what they learned back in even elementary and middle school. Um, each paragraph has a main idea, topic, sentence, specific supporting details after. Last sentence in the paragraph is concluding what was stated before. And first and last paragraphs, a lot of times they'll have their main idea. And then there's like little subtleties to SAT um, for reading, like approaches and things like that, that, that are helpful as, as well. But yeah. Go ahead, Paul. And Paul, coming to uh, SAT going digital. Uh, you know, I think it started off this, you probably finished the first digital SAT, just finished. Is that correct? So internationally, it's been given since March of 2023, but the digital SAT is not happening until March of 2024 here in the oh, States. Right. right. So um, we're making a clean break from it. Um, so we're, we're just teaching the paper and pencil test until December 2nd, that's the last uh, paper and pencil SAT. And then uh, right after the test, like literally the students take the paper and pencil test on Saturday the 2nd, and on Sunday the 3rd, I'm going to be having students take uh, class for the, di for the digital SAT. Yeah. Right. As a, you know, test prep business, what are the changes that you've had to kind of, you know, bring in or did you really have to bring in any changes? Does that change anything the way you teach? Yep. So a number of things. Number one, everyone's going to be bringing a laptop to class now. Right now, I don't right. have students bring laptops. Um, 
So we want to, they, I want the students to practice like they play. Um, there's a, a, another number of things as well. And ironically, the SAT from before March of 2016 could be helpful because, for example, well, I'm just going to discuss some of the changes in the test and then we'll kind of get on yeah, to sure. what I was about to say. So one thing is um, right now we have section one is only reading long passages, questions. Section two is only writing and language. Again, long passages. So in the reading, you'll have 10 or 11 questions for each passage. Writing a language, you have 11 questions per passage. Um, the new digital SAT, you're going to have one question per paragraph. And a paragraph might just be two sentences, but it's just so now the SAT could test a wider range of content. But, you know, kind of like a grammar question is a grammar question is a grammar question. But the reading comprehension, it'll be like a wider range of content um so right now the sat is like sex the first pass is always literature uh second is always social studies third and fifth are science uh fourth is history but you know again there's going to be like it's it's going to be that same those same concepts but just a paragraph each so wider range of things um what's coming back so the sat so the SAT is also, it's just going to have two sections, one reading and writing section. So in just that one section, you're going to have questions, reading and writing questions all mixed up. Um, and then um, the math, you're going to have open-ended and multiple choice, just like you do on the current test. But now the open-ended are going to have five spaces to bubble in instead of uh, four. Um, but now it's also section adaptive, which means if a student does really well in section one, reading, writing, then they're going to have a harder section two, reading, writing. If they don't do so well, they're going to have an easier section two, reading, writing. And the same goes for the math. So having taught SAT for so long is a bit of an advantage because we see things on this digital test like sentence completions which we haven't seen since before March of 2016. So I still have all my materials on sentence completion. So we're going to be incorporating that into this new digital SAT. Um, so, so some of the question types are going to be different. And then also the practice, all being one paragraph. Um, what I don't love about this new digital SAT, a couple of things. Number one, anytime the test changes, you don't have as as many resources, meaning not only there are not as many like supplemental books, which honestly I don't use very many supplemental books um, when I teach. I like to use authentic College Board material. So right now the SAT, the book that's put out by the SAT, um, has eight tests in it, and even before, and there's actually two tests that were in the first and second edition, tests two and four are not in the current um, book. But anyway, so right there, you've got 10 tests. Besides um, the college board, the people who make the SAT, they release the test every March, May, and October, as I stated. And um, there's also an international test that's released every year. So with 
all so we have so many resources for the paper and pencil test. So right now for the digital test, there's four digital tests and there's four linear digital tests. But the problem is one of my colleagues, uh, Kyle, said that there's um, about 70% of the questions that appear in the digital tests are also in the linear digital test. So there's so much overlap that you're not even having eight fresh tests. Not only that, but the college board, I could swear that they said that they're only going to have like one new test next year. But I saw someone post a review for the digital SAT book on Amazon who said that there's going to be four new tests for next year. But anyway, regardless, the number of resources are limited. So, um, and the the reading writing is different, not only because the paragraphs are shorter and we're going to have sentence please, there's even like some poetry on it. Um, the math is pretty much the same. Um, another one of my colleagues, uh, math Mc, Matt McGibbon, Mike McGibbon, um, has a, a product called Math Chops, which is excellent. And he's always doing studies on um, uh, trends in the tests and what percent of SAT questions or this, that, or the other thing. So if I had a, a student take um, the digital SAT, they would probably find no difference in the math questions that are on the digital SAT versus um, today's paper and pencil test. But when we dive deeper, what we find is that the proportions of questions are different in this new digital SAT than they were on the paper and pencil test. So, um, and that's thanks to, so I only know stuff because I hang out with really smart people. So like that's, hey, thanks to Mike McGibbon and hang out. I mean, like I might see him, like I interact with him online. But uh, I, I'll only see him like twice a year when we've got the the national NTPA conventions and stuff. But um, you know these guys, I do count them not only as colleagues but as friends, um, and they're just great resources um, in the industry. Great point. And overall, if you just have to say, digital sat. Uh, you know, which one is easier for the students taking it? Is it the digital SAT or is it the current one that's going on? Okay, so that's like the million dollar question that everyone's asking. And I get that question for SAT versus ACT. I also get the question for um, digital versus paper and pencil. And my answer is like, it's all a wash. And this is why I say, because a 1400, and I'm, this is off my head, but I, I think that I remember a 1,400 being the 94th percentile. So if a student scores 1,400, then they're scoring better than 94% of students. Now, the SAT, the people who make the test, they try to make every test of equal difficulty, but inevitably, students wind up doing better on one test than they do on another. So if it's a test that students wind up performing really well on, then students got to get more questions correct to get that same score. If they score very poorly on it, then students got to get, they, they could get more questions wrong and get that same score. 
So, you know, if you're at a 1400, you might get 18 wrong on one test might be 1400, 21 wrong on another test might be 1400. Now, this is true for every single standardized test, SAT, ACT, every standardized test a student ever takes from elementary school. They're scaled and equated. There's a great podcast that another one of my colleagues from the NTPA, Aaron Golumsfi, um, he's he's uh like a uh, he's one of the major players in Prep Matters. Uh, his business is out in Washington D.C. He did a whole podcast with um, um, uh, Amy Seely and Mike Bergen. Uh, Mike Bergen. Uh, is the president of NTPA. He's got a business chariot learning in Rochester, New York, and Amy Seely is out in Ohio, and they they run that podcast. But that's um, that's another um, great resource just for like how is uh, the test scored. So anyway, if if between the paper and pencil tests, and there's a really good example of this, um, if you were to look at the scales for test, I think it's test eight um on the sat in the current book it has a real in the paper and pencil book it has a really generous scale so i think that four wrong in the math is a 790 on that test where four wrong in the math on like test seven is um a 750 so that's an example of the scales being wide uh really different based on the difficulty level now if we were to look at um, SAT versus ACT, since it's all versed based on percentiles, then in the end, it's a wash. Like, hey, do I have a lot of students report that the ACT is easier? Um, yeah, but what they mean by that is it's a little more straightforward. The timing's also tougher on ACT. So are tests, are, is one test naturally better for a student than another? Um, Maybe a third of students score about the same. A third of students might score higher on SAT. A third of students might score higher on ACT. Um, it's and again, it's all based on percentiles. So, could we say one test is easier than the other? No. And the same goes for digital versus paper and pencil SAT. Um, according to College Board, uh, students have a much better experience. It's a two-hour test instead of a three-hour test. You've got these shorter passages. Um, so like it's more, they say that students are reporting it's more user-friendly, which may be the case. So maybe students, after they take the test, they'd be like, oh, that, that was easier, but that doesn't mean their score is going to be comparably higher. So since it's based on percentile, I think that in the end, it is a wash. Right. And, uh, Paul, uh, you know, coming back to your, uh, business and, you know, getting students, um, so what are the ways in which you, you know, you said in the beginning that, you know, it was word of mouth, but, you know, it's been almost two decades, no, not almost two decades and more. So what are, what have been your major methods of getting students to join your programs? Well, um, so yeah, I, I do love the word of mouth because, um, you know, People don't ask as many questions. They're like, hey, Johnny made a huge improvement, so we want some of that. Could you give it to us? And I'm like, yeah, sign up for class or private. You know, depending on, like, I, I use criteria for class versus private for students, and I also, um, like, matching up for with tutors and stuff like that. But, um, 
like beyond that, as you grow, you do like, there was a point where I was like, yeah, I do need to do some advertising now. So number one, like, let's say, let's say I was first starting. Um, one thing I had to do is I had to put the word out. I had to, people had to know that I do this. So I remember when I first started, I put like a four line ad in like this, uh, weekly newspaper. I think it's yeah. Weekly newspaper. Yeah. A four line ad in this weekly newspaper. And so that's one thing that I did. It was like $90 a month or something like that. So that's one thing I did to get students. So, you know, to keep the beat, the business healthy, like ongoing advertising is a good idea. So put the word out, do something as far as advertising goes. Um, and then like, again, so what did I do? And this is just based on my own experience, but I started inexpensively. Um, now maybe not, maybe you don't want to start too inexpensively. 20 bucks an hour was probably a little too inexpensive. Um, I don't think when like the 23 or 24 year old Paul knew what his worth was. And, you know, in some, like, I think that like to an extent, I, I don't know what it is now either, but, um, it, so what I did was I started so inexpensively. I can remember when I was at 40 bucks an hour, I had, um, a mom call me and say, and I told her I was 40 bucks an hour. And she was like, what's Ivy masters? Like, why is, why is this called Ivy masters? And I was like, well, that's the name of my business. I've, I went to an Ivy league school and I got my master's degree there as well. And she was like, she was basically like, something's not right. And she hung up the phone without saying goodbye. And I was like, what just happened? <laughs> and people equate quality with price. So if you're too inexpensive, then people are going to think that you stink. Um, but hey, I was getting like, I guess the low hanging fruit when I started. So I started inexpensive. And then if, as your schedule fills, you just raise your prices. And um, so that's, you could definitely get, probably get more students. People are going to buy based on price or going to sign up based on price um, if you are inexpensive, but you could get there. You could literally, every test your schedule fills, you could raise your prices. And then, you know, so if it's for SAT, then you could raise your prices $35 a year in that case. Um, okay. So, and then the third thing is do an amazing job. And this is not something that is going to necessarily happen immediately. Now, one thing is you might walk into an appointment and have a student say, Oh, I got this SAT prep before. And I learned more in your first lesson than I learned in like, however many hours of SAT prep they'd done before your lesson. So stuff like that happens. Fantastic. But, um, by doing an amazing job, like really the proof is, did the student increase? How much did the student increase? And it, it's, that's only one part of doing an amazing job. I'd say that's one of the two parts. The second part is building the relationship. So one thing is I don't, I used to go to the house. I used to see students in their home and there's something more intimate about that. I don't do that anymore, but, um, when you are in someone's home and you know, you, the parents are right there, the kids right there, there might be younger siblings right there that you see. 
um, you know, that that's great for building the relationship. At some point, um, if you're going to grow, then it's not really practical anymore. But um, you could still have great relationships by having uh, great contact with the families. Great, great. And um, another question, you know, have there been experiences, you know, where you've thought to yourself, okay, these are the things that you do not communicate to the parents or students? Like, don't do this. Um, yeah, so, um, so, like, let's say you have siblings. It's just a, uh, a bad idea to say, to, like, compare one sibling to another. Uh, because a lot of times... And if it's a sibling who's like not as motivated or not as high achieving or high scoring, um, they're they've probably heard about it their whole life and they probably feel ter- terrible about themselves for it. Um, so you know, comparing siblings is probably a bad idea. Um, another thing is like criticizing the test. Like literally tonight in my class, I had a student say. Oh, I think that di- I'll do better on the digital SAT because of X, Y, Z. And I was like, I admonished her. I said, you need to prepare for this test. And she's she's taking class in preparation for the October SAT. You need to prepare for this test as if it's the last shot you have in your senior year. That's where you're going to get the improvement. You want to be done. You don't want to drag this out. So... Any criticism of the test, and hey, are the tests perfect? They're not. Um, and GPA might be the single most important factor in college admissions, but it, it's still SAT and a, or ACT or both. They are the most important tests that students are going to take for college admissions. So when you criticize a test, then um, students just, that's like they have an out. Oh, the tests are bogus anyway. Like I didn't score well, but the tests are bogus anyway, or whatever. Mm. so that's also a bad idea and then um the third thing is to talk about test optional now i am after covid hit like just about all the universities went test optional today there's probably 80 percent of the universities that are still test optional um now it's a difference between like i'm comfortable talking about it with parents like we could talk about like you know Universities supposedly stayed test optional to increase racial diversity, but I think that that's a bunch of horse crap because it's in the university's best interest to stay test optional. Um, one thing is, like, if we were to look at the most elite universities in the country, there was a New York Times article on this. The top 0.1% in income, they're twice as likely to be admitted to most elite universities. They score the highest, like here in, in, in the US, there's like this holistic admissions policy and everyone wants to be like, hey, um, this university is looking at not just how my students, my my child's doing in school, but they're look, looking at them like volunteering and doing all this other stuff. And that's all, that's all like well and good. Like in a perfect world, yeah, we'd look at all those things, but those measurements are not quantifiable. You can't put a yeah. number on those things. And like, so those are the things that the wealthiest score the highest on because they're the ones who could volunteer in 
like Costa Rica, like for Habitat for Humanity or something like that. So um, rich white kids wind up getting the most benefit from like holistic admissions policy and measures that you can't quantify. So that what I see the SAT and the ACT as they're like the great equalizers. Um, right. And if Stanley Kaplan, he was actually, he felt like, um, and it's much the situation that uh, Asian students are in these days. He had applied to medical school and was rejected. He's Jewish. And he was like, Hey, they, they rejected me because I was Jewish. Like I have some, some of my classmates uh, did not do as well in school and they wound up getting into med school. What's up with that? So that, that's why he was a huge advocate of the SAT because he saw that it could be, um, you know, we could have a system of meritocracy rather than, and it would be like a great equalizer. And, you know, for poor students, I have an, another colleague in um, DC who does a lot of uh, nonprofit work. Um, his name's Nitin. And he, he, you know, a lot of times these tests, he's got poor students that work their butt off to increase their, their scores. And then they wind up getting accepted to these universities that they would never get accepted to had they not. Um, so anyway, when, when universities go test optional, they get a lot more applications. So that, and they have the same number of seats. So then their percentage admitted goes down. So then they're going to look more competitive. Um, and then they'll also have a higher SAT and ACT score because those who score in uh, below the top 50th percentile, they're not going to submit their scores. So then they look more competitive again. Um, and um, so GPA is also less reliable than ever. If we, if we look at 1966, 11.3% of students uh, who self-reported their uh, grades to universities had an A average. In 2016, so this is still seven years ago, and it's been on the rise the whole time, it was 55.1% of self-reported scores were at A average. Um, and also there's difference test optional versus test blind. Test blind, they're not looking at your scores, but test optional, um, it's not that, you know, admissions offices know that if you don't submit scores, it's because you either didn't do well on the tests or you wouldn't have done well or you're lazy or whatever. But I remember when COVID hit, um, 92% more applicants were accepted to my alma mater than those um, who did not submit scores. So that's almost double. So um, that right. says something. But the test optional thing is not something that I want to discuss with my students because I want, you know, my students, I want them to do well on the test and I want it to help them to get in. A lot of times scholarship money is uh, tied to the test as well. So, you know, some schools, another, another 50 point, every 50 points, you get another $5,000 in merit aid. So, hey, the test is great for that. So I don't like to, I don't want to discuss test optional with my students. I want them to be all in on the test so they can get that score that's going to help their parents retire early because now I don't have to spend so much money on college. and. Um, you know, you get the point there. Yeah. yeah. Paul, uh, probably my last question. Although, you know, you have majority of your students in person, uh, what are some of the software tools that you really go to uh, to keep your business running? 
So I've got um, Acuity. So um, Acuity has like auto follow-up stuff. And this is a project that I've actually not completed. Like I've got it all structured out in my mind, but um, August SAT, which was just last, it was August 26th. Um, so I'm so busy because the students are available like 24 seven and I kind of make myself available as well. So I've got like some projects that I just really haven't gotten around to finishing. And that's one of them. Um, and my website's WordPress and we use MailChimp for our newsletter. That's, that's a, about it, I guess, as far as technology goes. Right. And what about for your virtual teaching? Uh, I use uh, Google Workspace. Right. So, so you, yeah, you it, use Google Meet. Yeah. There's a there's a product that, yeah, I use Google Meet. And um, there's a product that uh, called Pencil Spaces that is really robust. It's, it's really a great solution. But I think it's going to have to piggyback on Google Workspace. So I don't know if it's going to make like, financial sense for me to get it. Google Workspace has everything I need. Um, pencil spaces, you know, I might look into further, but I haven't really, like I, they got this deal a dollar a month per tutor for the first year, which I signed up for, but I just haven't used it. Um, I got to, there's probably like a, a bit of alert learning curve there and it's got to be worth, worth it for me. Right. Paul. And, uh, as far as the diagnostic tests for the digital SAT goes, you said that, you know, there are about eight tests, uh, you know, of two groups for each. But, you know, they're not really fresh. Only four are kind of like unique. So, uh, you, you, so when you, when, are, when there's a student that's about to join your classes, you use one of those tests to diagnose them, like where they are assessed them. Yeah. So, and again, we're not, um, we're running paper and pencil mock tests until December. Right. And then we'll have our first, so December 2nd, and then December 3rd, we will have our first digital mock SAT. So at this point, let's say a student is de deciding between, it could be between paper and pencil or digital, or it could be between um, digital SAT and ACT. For right now, um, I'm directing them to the Blue Book app. The College Board has a, a Blue Book app where you can right. take four of those tests, like digitally, exactly how it'll be on test day. And I have a, a colleague in India, her name is Sonia Mathia. And so she's been um, having students take the digital test since March. And she says that test four is the uh, is a, a great test. Um, as far as like, um, it's in line. She says that that's uh, most in line with the results that students are getting um, on their uh, on their actual tests. Got it, Paul. And when it comes to practice tests, right? Uh, you know, once they take your classes, and then you know before they go take the actual test, what's the average amount of practice tests that a student takes to kind of you know be about the ninety fifth percentile or ninety fourth? To be to be in the uh, 94th percentile or whatever. Well, it, it 
and this is one of the questions that I didn't, I didn't answer before. Like how much time does a student take? It all depends on where they're starting and where they want to be. So, um, Hey, it's great if a student just keeps improving. Um, sometimes students plateau. Sometimes they have a lot of difficulty improving because they just don't have the the fundamentals, the foundation uh, down to build from. And like what comes to mind specifically is a student whose uh, mom had called me and she was that student who was in the 700s. And I, you know, I advised against prep. I actually told her about like test optional being a thing and being a good idea. Um, and then she proceeded to book like, I think 24 lessons with one of my tutors and then take one of my classes. But um, yeah, so it depends if a student's starting from an average score or if they are starting, um, you know, how close they are to their goal is really going to dictate the timeline on how long they are going to prepare for. Um, it's so it's, it's, it's tough to say. And then there's monitoring after that. Some, sometimes students respond to the prep really well, and sometimes they don't respond as well to the prep. Typically I'll assign a mock, uh, a test each week. So we can see exactly uh, right. where a student strengths and weaknesses are. What I do is I'll assign a test, um, the first week. And so the, during the second lesson, if I'm working with a student privately, I'm writing down every single piece of content and strategy that that student's missed. And from there, I give the student drills on all that content and strategy. Um, and then once we're done with all the drills over the subsequent weeks, then we'll look at the test again, the most recent test, and we'll reassess, hey, what types of questions is a student still missing? So ideally, by the time we're finished prepping, we're in a position where um, we've done all the drills we need to do, and that student's missing just the hard level questions. And and even if they're not, whatever level question they're missing, we're just working on the questions. We're getting more of a mix of the different types of questions. Right, Paul. Paul, uh, great. Uh, I, I think, you know, I've asked all the questions that I wanted to ask you. And uh, thank you so much for uh, sharing and, you know, being candid about a lot of other things. It's been great talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, you're very welcome, Jag. Thank you so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure. This podcast is brought to you by Edison OS, a no-code edtech platform to operate an online education business. Knowledge entrepreneurs can use Edison OS to sell online courses from their own websites, manage online masterclasses, launch mobile learning apps, sell online practice tests for competitive exams, run online learning communities, digitizing their offline tutoring business, use it as a learning management system, and a lot more cases in the domain of knowledge commerce.